0: Today we are exploring the harvesting of wild game as meat here on the Low Tox Life podcast. If all the birds could fly right now As high as me somehow They could see all the things I've been dreaming of These wings of mine flutter inside They shimmy and they glide Breaking forth, crack the shell from this clockwork line Hello and welcome to the Low Tox Life Podcast. I'm Alex Stewart, your host, and today is show 284 and I have a wonderful duo, Tara Medina and Billy Stoughton, joining me on the show today. Uh, we are talking about wild game as food uh, and we go to uncover what wild game are doing to... Um, our farming landscapes. So unfortunately a lot of people who eat plant-based diets, for example, think that they're avoiding the killing of animals, which of course you're avoiding the killing of the animals that you eat, that you would have eaten otherwise. But every type of food involves death, unfortunately. And I think it, it is a journey that a lot of people have to go on once you realise it, if you have thought that you were able to avoid it. Uh, And I know that can be uh, heartbreaking. I had the good fortune of learning from people who opened my eyes to the entire food system from the get-go when I started exploring this myself. So I had that understanding and I just wanted to find a way to eat in a way that was the least harmful to animals uh, and, of course, the least harmful and most beneficial to our planet, thus arriving at regenerative agriculture. But when we look at wild game today, it's almost like we're going a step further um, because we're solving the problem of invasive animal species on farmland where we're growing crops uh, to eat. Uh, For example, I know Matthew Evans in his book uh, On Eating Meat uh, that came out a few years ago, he went and chatted to various Uh, farmers in the crop space, so snow pea farmers, uh, farmers of various vegetables basically and plant foods, and they talked about having to kill hundreds of wild animals a year just to be able to grow their crops uh, without them being damaged and to be able to sell them. So that was interesting to me when I first read about that years ago and then when Matthew talked about it in his book, it was like how do we find um a peaceful place to arrive if the killing of animals is upsetting to us. Well, unfortunately, being an animal species ourselves, uh, one of the first things we have to do is realise that nothing can be grown as food without um, being harvested in some way and death happening, whether it's mice in a wheat field, uh rabbits, in a cornfield, you know, it's all, it is impossible unless you are growing a spinach. And even then, you might kill a, cap, a caterpillar to get your spinach protected. I know I've done that many times. So, how do we do this food thing in a way that is good for the planet, good for us, and least harmful? To animals. I think that is really where we have to arrive. And what I was fascinated by in this conversation was uh, the way these animals are killed and harvested uh, seems to actually be the most ethical form of meat available and also uh, seems to be instrumental in preventing environmental damage and seems to be some of the most nutritious. So it's definitely a topic worth exploring. I'm absolutely not and never do I try to change the way anyone eats other than our real number one enemy, which is ultra-processed foods. Uh, From there, if you are on the whole food train, you eat however it feels right for you to eat, but I think it's important that we all learn about the many different ways that we can actually try and strike multiple wins as we explore what ethical eating really looks like in the big picture and accepting all of the realities of what it means to be a human and procure food. So I hope you enjoy this conversation today with Tara and Billy. Um, They're both fabulous and I love their bio. (laughs) I've got to read you a couple of sentences from this. Um, During the pandemic and while the restaurant sector was in the throes of lockdown, Billy Staughton and Tara Medina discovered discovered wild foods, sorry guys, uh, is the name of their brand, launched their brand of wild harvested sandbar venison. Coming from diverse backgrounds in events, music festivals, bars, management consulting, and even stints as a jackaroo, a wild game business seemed the next logical step. So it really posed a lot of uh, challenges for them to get this supply chain right and get it off the ground, but I really think you're going to enjoy learning about both of their individual backgrounds, how they came to be together working under discovered wild foods and and starting that brand and then of course some of the ethical environmental and nutrition considerations when choosing various forms of food it's a great chat so i'm going to launch into that in just a second i want to remind you we have three amazing offers as always oz climate our major sponsor this year 10% off with the code Life, and a lot of people are mourning the fact, if you're listening live, that they are out of stock of dehumidifiers until mid-June uh, because it's still very, very wet here on the wet, co- on the wet coast. It's literally the wet coast if you live on the east coast and devastating to so many people and really instrumental is uh, getting a dehumidifier. So you won't have to wait too long, but they do have plenty of stocks of their Winix air purifiers. How do you know you're in the market for an air purifier? Either you live on a property regionally where there's agricultural chemicals used in the vicinity or you live in the city where there are uh, cars driven past you every day or nearby at least uh, or you live on land that used to be industrial Or you have pets and someone has allergies in the house or someone often gets hives or histamine reactions, uh, you know, that allergic kind of profile. You guys all need an air purifier. So do check out the Winix range. 10% off with the code LOTOXLIFE at Ozclimate.com.au. Second offer. Oh, my gosh, some incredible reviews coming in already from you guys for the BioFirst Manuka Skin Saver. Uh, I shared my sister's revelation and uh, story about this uh, when I um sent it to her and said try this for, you know, the little guy who's got eczema and she said it was really, really working. But I just wanted to share a couple of other reviews. I just wanted to say, this is from someone online on their website, The product is one of the only ones I've found that helps me out long-term. I have dry, itchy, psoriasis-prone skin in my beard and it helped instantly. It hasn't come back in weeks. Great product. Another one here, wow, I've only been using this for four days. What a huge difference. It's made to my body and scalp. I've tried so many things, even things the doctor prescribed. And I'm so impressed I'm going to order more. And actually one of the people who won the competition a couple of weeks ago that we ran on socials uh, actually was not wanting to wait to find out she was winning the competition or not. She ordered the special offer that they have. So the Manuka Skin Saver is what you buy with this offer and that's a $50 product. And then free automatically added to your cart will be the self-heal salve. Uh, and then, so I just wanted to share a couple of things that you could use each of these products for if you haven't come across BioFirst before. Beautiful Australian, local made and, uh, and produced brand. So the Manuka Skin Saver is a natural steroid free alternative. So anytime you've been prescribed a cortisone cream, for example, this is a product that you can try instead. Red irritated, inflamed, dehydrated, dry or itchy itchy skin, prone to eczema or psoriasis, or undergoing radiation for cancer treatment or damaged by the sun and sun exposure. That is the scope that you might want to look at the Manuka Skin Saver for. And then the self-heal salve is basically your SOS response if your skin gets uh, upset. You know, so think something has caused it to get rough, prickly, sharp, dirty, stings, bites or burns. You head for the self-heal salve, which is completely free and valued at $30 this month while you buy the Manuka Skin Saver. So jump to the link in our profile or the link in the Instagram bio, which is at Lotox Life and then you hit the um linktree link on my profile and then you will see the biofirst uh link to shop through so all you have to do is add the manuka skin saver to your cart and then if you click view cart you'll see that the Self-Heal self heal salve has been added because of the special link that you used to click through enjoy Third offer is from the wonderful Block Blue Light. Now this is an international offer because these guys ship worldwide, so I'm speaking to all of you guys who tune in from around the world. Remember, Block Blue Light is a leading supplier of blue and artificial light blocking products, but also they've brought out fantastic red light therapy products in the last year or so. I have a panel myself. It is incredible. And if you have ever considered or wondered what blue, what, um, sorry, blue light, red light therapy is for, it is in the research shown to stimulate our mitochondria. So our mitochondria are. Um, basically think of them as our little body batteries and there's millions and millions of them and we can know that our mitochondria isn't working for us so well and maybe the battery's a bit drained. When we feel super lethargic, uh, constantly like we're fighting something off, of course go speak to your doctor and eliminate anything, have a blood test, all of that's important. But red light therapy is an incredible therapy that you can do in the comfort of your own home to re-energize your mitochondria. It's said to, and a lot of people have uh, shared some pretty amazing benefits online if you look at the reviews, help reduce cosmetic skin issues, stretch marks, wrinkles. Uh, It's really, really powerful. But if you are recovering, say, from some of the big lurgies or the chief big lurgy that a lot of people are talking about around the world right now, then your mitochondria might be down and out and really in need of uh, literally a battery recharge. So red light therapy is something you might want to consider. Now, of course, you can go to a treatment uh, place where you can hire a red light therapy panel or bed out, but it can be extremely expensive and add up super quickly with treatments ranging from $80 to $150 for one session. If you buy yourself a red light panel, That's something you can use several times a week in the comfort of your own home and you make that cash back very, very quickly. And then you've got something there for when you're injured. Uh, Red light therapy is fantastic for joint muscle issues, really, really powerful for um, circulation as well. A whole host of benefits have been flooding the research lately. It just seems to get better and better out there uh, in terms of building a case for it. So your code is LOTOX15 for 15% off at Block Blue Light, and that's off their whole range, not just the red light therapy, and you have that for the month of May. So enjoy those LOTOX swaps. A big thank you to our partners for helping us put on the show for you guys every single week. And now let us dive into the wildest of foods, hunted, wild game and how that might have a place in our shopping baskets moving forward. Enjoy. Hello Tara, hello Billy, how are you guys?
1: Very well. Awesome,
0: great to have you both on the show and as people would have heard in the intro this is uh, a discussion about sustainability and ethics when it comes to meat but We're not talking chicken, beef and pork today. We're actually talking about hyper management of wild game, wild animals, and how we can actually uh, start to have a more varied conversation when it comes to ethics and meat. Uh, And today we're talking about that uh, unique to Australia. So I want to get going by... Asking you, Tara, how you grew up and how you started to become interested in the food system and maybe becoming a person who did something about some of the more broken aspects of it.
1: Sure. Um, so, I definitely grew up most of my life in very urban environments. Me um, too. Yeah. Moved, moved cities quite a few times with my family growing up, but we're always kind of in really big, dirty, loud cities. And I don't claim to have woken up to, you know, sustainability issues in general or, or the specific issues around food at a young age. It was definitely more something I started thinking about um, while at university. Mm-hmm. And I guess it just came to food specifically because, you know, like I think so many people have experienced throughout, like, the early 2000s and beyond, we all started to kind of get um, – inundated with information about climate change documentaries and exposés and you know all the things that that we as a society aren't doing right however when you live in an urban environment especially if you're a young person or you know not um don't have unlimited financial resources when you think about the big levers you can pull to reduce your impact you don't always have control over them so Mm. you might be living in you know a share house you can't switch to solar like that's not that's not an option for you you can't put a composting toilet in your rental house in Fitzroy so when I started to think about what levers were really accessible to every person food really is that common ground everybody's got to eat and everybody makes decisions about their food um obviously cost can be a factor in that, but even if we try and remain agnostic of cost, um, there are still choices at different price tiers that are going to be more sustainable than others. So I just became interested in food as, as like a really democratic um, medium for, for making a more sustainable change in, in your life.
0: Yeah, nice. And so as a fellow city chick... Um, <laughs> And definitely a child, like I was a child of the 80s, so hyper convenience, like the 80s is when the lolly aisle went into the supermarkets and everyone thought it was Christmas. Like I've seen a few things in my time. And what I find interesting about waking up to the food system as a city person, especially if you maybe even have that extra tier removed of not having a local farmer's market, which not every suburb has yet. Yep. Yep. Um, you really are removed and you really are going to these uh, hyper food spaces with the yep. fluorescent lighting and everything feels artificial if you start to get to know what a food system should actually look like. But you can then be brought into quite a tailored narrative that makes you think, okay, so for me to do, um, be planet friendly and tread lightly and all of those things, I have to eat... Um, hyper-processed plant-based ready meals and um, textured protein vegetable nuggets and all sorts of really processed food and for me the the patent and copyrightable and profitable aspect of those businesses obviously demonstrates how we've ended up there because we're in this weird economic bubble of never-ending growth otherwise it all falls apart and Things need to be built in those sorts of um, business models. But you've found a way, as has Billy and in working together, to do something very different, which is very interesting to me because what you guys are doing is you're showing we don't need to go down trademarked hyper-processed food to tread lightly and to do the right thing by people, planet and animals. Um, and so I want to go over to you, Billy, now to just ask you how you grew up and um, what woke you up to the food system. Are you like Tara, a city boy, or were you like a fifth-generation farmer who, you know, it's always so interesting to see where people come from?
2: Definitely. Um, I'm a bush kid. Came out yep. from a very small little, well, not even a town, but a farming community uh, called Jangelic. Uh mm-hmm. It's in the Upper Murray. Very mountainous, beautiful sort of you know pristine it's been you know long-term farming area but there's a lot of bush and there's that sort of crossover between national parks and farming and it's all that fringe country so i was exposed to it all from from an early age but didn't have i mean similar to tara I, i didn't you don't it's not really something you necessarily think about unless you're told and it wasn't really a conversation um you know it's it's been sort of that same sort of early 20s when i started doing a lot of uh i've always done a lot of hunting and you just sort of notice as you're as you're going to you know you're going to prepare food for yourself and you're going to go and and you know go shopping or you're going to go hunting. You'd come out with this sort of massive surplus of food, and you'd be out there looking and seeing that there's just so much available, uh, and that you know it it sort of clicked as, as you know as the conversation looks around how you can actually minimise your footprint or what are you actually able to contribute to. You know, it, it's um, there was just so much available. I guess the first time when I was, I was actually in the Territory and I was working on a cattle station when I was about 19 and we spent a day uh, in a helicopter uh, out controlling feral populations of uh, donkeys
1: mm-hmm.
2: and, it, and goats and, right. it just, and pigs. You know, we could go out and shoot several hundred pigs from a helicopter in a day. And you're looking at this... And viral, what is the, program,
0: just for non-farmer peeps? What is the purpose of going into a helicopter and shooting animals on mass? Like, well, why, that's do you, why, you, why do you have to do that?
2: Because there's a, the the viable protein is beef, and beef has a market, and beef has an existing customer base, and people understand it. And there's so many inputs. There's the education programs. There's a massive amount of infrastructure investment that goes into beef. And there's these neglected, you know, these neglected viable proteins pork i mean i don't know how popular donkey would be but it's still a potentially delicious extremely nutritious and healthy protein that we have in surplus you know in camel and this was this was all stuff this was all so this was area based around the the territory so it's a different it's it's obviously different species and but it's the same issue when you come down back down south so um you know coming back down and then i was living in melbourne for a minute and you're hearing these reports of of feral deer populations encroaching on the city as this pressure and this massive issue that council has to control and these enormous culling programs that they, they you know, have been operating predominantly aerially. So we're talking several thousand dollars a day to run a helicopter, you know, between four to $6,000 a day, two shooters and a pilot fuel helicopter and all the licensing required to go shoot deer from a heli, you know, to try and control populations. Um, it was just sort of, it's an incredible amount of resource to try and solve what they consider, a you know, a problem. But I think um, that was just sort of a realization. And when you say, when did you wake up to it? It is that once you, you wake up to this, to the understanding that we have this enormous agricultural sector in Australia that completely ignores uh, a whole sector of, of I mean, I, I call them proteins, but they're animals of species. You know, we're, we're trading, we're shooting kangaroos and pigs and goats, you know, actually, not goats anymore because that that conversation changed sort of five or ten years ago, and they've become highly valuable. But we're still maintaining you know, we're still baiting and trapping and shoot aerially shooting deer and 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 pigs and and everything else other than these target species, which we've been actively breeding and cultivating. Um, and once you realize that what the scale of that Australia has to offer in terms of what that that resource is, uh, you realize. I mean, that was the that was a real moment. You're looking, we have. How you know we've got a, a national herd of around, don't quote me on any of these, but it's around forty million cattle. We have, uh, and our wild boar population in Australia is, fluctuates, but is currently around forty million. But wild boar is not even, you know, it's it's a very very niche uh, protein within the Australian marketplace.
0: Yeah, and it, these sorts of um, niche meats have ve- had sort of so far. Been things uptaken by chefs with a passion for local produce. Uh, You know, you think of Ben Shuri and people like that um, uh, who put it on, you know, three hat restaurant menus, $50 main courses, 60, 70. And so the average person thinks, oh, that's posh food. And this is you know and we have the same issue largely with produce in general you know i remember neil perry giving us classes on tv in the 80s and 90s and every time he would say it's all about the fresh produce and all i could think was no that's not cool like my pop-tarts are cool like that's what's cool and so there are these real disconnects between what the average joe um considers to be an accessible food source based on the cultural and trend framing of how that food then gets presented um, in society, which is a big part of the work.
2: And, you know, in in Tara's case, Tara would come down and we've been friends for 20 years. Mm. We'd come, we'd go hunting. And the preconception, and I still have it, which is amazing. You know, I've been, we've been doing this business for years and I still hunt and have for my whole life essentially. But I still naturally the fallback position is certain types of meat and certain types of animals have a certain, place you know mm. in, in, in a meal and they so you look at venison as a really gamey but it's absolutely not and that this is and you know wild boar as has a taint and it's got you can only use it for sausages or people have these really strong preconceptions within the australian you know food landscape that don't necessarily exist certainly in europe boar is is every you know it's it's very much common. more common yeah in new zealand's had had a, you an know, excellent program around um venison and and having government-backed programs around marketing venison and mm. And that, you know, is a point in case that their wild deer population has been reduced to, I mean, there's still plenty up in the hills, but in terms of a viable commercial wild harvest, they don't really, the numbers have come right, right back. Mm. Um, so that was, you know, we would, again, early 20s, Tara would come down and we would, we've been, been out hunting and you get these, you get these animals and the, the meat, the, the value of the meat that comes off them is just incredible. And that they're, they're is there. And the quality of the meat is absolutely I mean, it's, 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 it's as good as it gets. It's it's absolutely brilliant. And
0: And then the nutritional aspect as well. Oh my gosh. It's incredible. When you compare venison to say chicken, Uh, you're getting nervous system, B vitamins, muscular health, uh, really incredible protein. Yep. Uh, Yeah. I mean, you could go on. So, and I remember reading in Matthew Evans's book about um, eating meat in general, and mm. he talked about wild animals having to be killed for crops as well. And one of the um, misconceptions is, is, of course that if we eat plant-based food, we're kinder to the animals, but not if we're talking about wild animals. We're not because they're all being rabbits, deer, kangaroos being shot so that we can grow snow peas, for example, and. And that's, Um, you know, I think people really need to understand that it's a much greyer area than has been presented traditionally. And that way we can actually find room for every type of eater and then peacefully move forward trying to do our best with sourcing and uh, localization. really. Yeah. So, okay, we have City Chick meets Country Boy. How did that happen, Tara? And how did you guys decide to go into business? Um,
1: City boy meets country chick because we went to boarding school
0: together. Ah, okay. Um,
1: and have been friends since since then, really. Um, mm-hmm. And I am a massive foodie. I've always loved food. I adore cooking. Um, never sort of will eat anything at least once before I decide if I'm going to turn my nose up at it or not. Nice. And Bill would always just be bringing home different you know, um, tasty treats from the country, whether it was rabbit or or venison. And I think the first time he he convinced me to try venison, I literally had a a profound high like after the meal. Like I felt like I'd just had, you know. Um, an IV of iron it's unbelievably nourishing my
0: grandmother okay I have a a childhood story of that as well and I've totally forgotten this story but I always used to get sick when I went to Mauritius to visit her I don't know why but I would always have maybe it was just you know busy school term and then you're finally stopping and still and it's beachside and and so my immune system would always get hit the first week I was there and she would just make me a little venison steak that's it that's all that for was on cure, the plate
1: cure yeah off. yeah and
0: she's and no one else got to have it it was just me because I was sick yeah and
1: you've got that saying wrong it's actually a backstrap a day keeps the doctor away
0: yeah and um and I'll never forget it it was really revered as this special food for if you were under the weather and you needed a big pick-me-up um and um yeah wow you just reminded me of that how cool <laughs> So, okay you keep talking
1: so yeah I just remember this dinner in his kitchen where I tried um tried some venison for the first time having never really encountered it even in a restaurant previously and I felt so charged energetically afterwards I just was firing off questions to him about it and it became an ongoing conversation over a number of years because I re- we will, he already knew, but I definitely realised even if I wanted to, I couldn't really go out and buy the same thing at a butcher because even specialty butchers in Melbourne were only selling farmed venison from a small number of farms in Victoria, some in Tasmania and Western Australia. And um, it wasn't actually legal to procure wild venison commercially. And then in, I think it was 2019 now, the last two years have been a bit of blur. It might've been 2018. 2018, Prime Safe, which is sort of the meat regulatory authority in Victoria, um, changed their rules so that you could commercially harvest wild deer. And the motivation behind that was really an acknowledgement of the fact that the conservation impacts were getting out of control and deer were starting to have such a profound impact on native habitat their population numbers were starting to grow so significantly estimated to be over a million
0: in victoria alone wow Um, and was the deer here before europeans were here or did we bring them we brought them okay so so we then started affecting australian habitat yeah
1: yeah it was it was really the knock-on effects of a lot of deer farmers going out of business um, Mm -hmm. back in the 70s or 80s and and really just releasing non-viable herds of their previously farm stock into the wild.
0: And that shows you how, um, you know, a lot of people don't realise how important um, royalty has been in meat trends. Yeah. Uh, If you look at British royalty food trends um, and then what became trendy from the Victorian era and beyond... It just narrowed and then it was like, no, 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 you don't want to eat, that's for peasants <laughs> kind of stuff. It's unbelievable how people don't realise where it all comes from, why we eat the way we eat. Yeah. Um, but it's a pretty fascinating journey to, to go down those rabbit holes and, and yeah. see. Mm. Absolutely.
1: I mean, once we learned that the, the rules were changing so that you could make a business out of this, yeah. that kind of when the spark ignited, I guess. And it was the first time, I think, I, you know, each of us has been involved in a lot of different businesses over the last decade. We've certainly tried wearing lots of different hats, respectively, in our lives. And um, a wild meat supply and, and distribution business <laughs> didn't necessarily fit that path. But the more we've spoken and, and about it, the more we realized it was the first business we'd encountered that didn't really seem to have a downside. Yeah. Whether you were addressing it from a pure ecology and conservation perspective, you would have a positive impact. If you were talking about eating to a high quality of health, you know, that ticked a box. If you were talking about reducing our carbon footprint for people who want to consume animal proteins, it ticked that box creating regional employment, removing a cost for farmers who are already under financial duress. Yeah, so I was going to ask about
0: that. Is it a two-pronged business model as a service to farmers, so not your land, for example, and you go in and you sort that out and then you take it off their hands, as well as farmers who have those wild uh, populations also being able to do that themselves? Does it work both ways? It, it sort of does.
1: I'll let Billy speak to this. Yeah, nice.
0: Before. Okay. So the, the harvest um,
2: system is it's fairly detailed. The, the all harvesting has to be done on private property, so it is all done on farmland. Currently, that you're not allowed to commercially harvest um, on state or national parks. So it's generally there's and there's a fair bit of uh, there's a fair bit of qualification that you need to become a commercially registered harvester. There's courses, um, there's a tape course that's that's required in your module 306. I should remember these things, but there's, um, and then you've you've got to run out and have it um, be approved by a qualified field dresser. And so there's quite a bit to it. And then you've got to have the equipment and a certified rack. So you've got to have a rack registered through either food safe or prime safe, depending within South Wales or Victoria. Um, And then you've got to have registered box and then there's box operator. And then you've got to have registered transport vehicles. Um, and then, obviously, a registered processing plant. So you, you either need to be an independent contractor. So each harvester is an independent contractor to the field, and they'll sell their animals into the field. So they they've got to tag and and um, eviscerate to a standard, um, and it's all got to be done at night. It's all got to be done, uh, if, you know, before the sun comes up, and all under very strict temperature controls. Mm-hmm. So why the uh, strict
0: temperature of- controls? Because of health, like um, um, uh, food safety.
2: Yeah. So there was a food safety plan written um, by uh, within New South Wales was probably food safe. Uh, I believe it was late sixties. So there was a whole lot of accommodations that had to be made to allow the harvesting of wild game because it doesn't fit within the existing uh, food safety programs for, for, you know, abattoirs and for meat handling. Um, That's not to say that it's any less safe or any, you know, uh, but it's, they had to bend the rules so that currently you can't mix species because animals taken through an abattoir um you can't actually mix in with it with a wild game animal so that you can't run them in the same line because they've had different you know handling procedures throughout but the, the temperature controls you still got to do run what's called a muscle probe so it's a deep muscle muscle uh thermometer that goes in and it tests so muscle closer to the bone. Um, and that'll actually give you a temperature reading. You've got to bring that muscle temperature down below seven degrees within 24 hours of the animal being harvested, um, so which requires you know harvesting to be done at, at the, in the colder hours at nighttime and put into the box within an hour of sunrise. And then your muscle probe goes in and then you've got that period um, to be chilled. And then once it's held, then you've got to go to various registered boxes and each animal is, is tagged and recorded. And there, so there's a full that that animal should have a temperature log, um, and a processing date from the moment that it's shot essentially. And so there's, there's this, there's a, there's a huge amount of, uh, data that's captured, but there's also a whole, you know, there's a whole chain of responsibility through it that, that makes it difficult just to be purely a privateer, but people do, we have farmers that can, that can go through that get certified by the equipment and manage their own farms. But as Sarah said, in terms of regional, regional employment, uh, you know, there's with any single community, you could have multiple shooters, able, you know, having a viable income from harvesting, whether it's kangaroos, deer, or pigs.
0: Yeah. Wow. Okay. Uh, but it does sound like they make you jump through a fair few more ho- hoops to do it.
2: Yeah. It's diff- it is. Uh. It's yeah. It's difficult to. It's difficult to come in fully green and just do it as. an mm. So generally, you've got to, You know, the key is access to farms as well. So you've. You, difficult just to drive around the farm's door knocking to get permission so you've got to have yeah. um written permission signed written authority to enter the farm you've got to have a full a shoot plan around when and how and you obviously have to be a trained marksman yeah to of course Through back here, which is another module that you have to be that you have to get um certified in so but it, with that said it's something that the the professionals that harvest for us um They are generally, a lot of them do come from, you know, they are farmers have their own farms and this is a supplementary income. Some Mm -hmm. of them are full time, but their harvesting happens, as I said, at night. So they'll leave. They won't leave till after dinner and they'll Mm -hmm. be back. They could get home sort of 10, 11 or lunchtime the next day, by the time they've collected the animals, taken to the depot, cleaned off their, their vehicles. And pack down for the night. There might be lunchtime the next, the following day. So they'll wow, so it's shift day.
0: work as well. It's intense.
2: Yeah, it is. It, it, mm. it, it it's intense, but that's obviously ensures that the animals are delivered to the depots um, in you know the right temperature and the right time frame.
0: Yeah, um, of course. Basically. And can I ask uh, Billy yep. just so it's super clear uh, because we do live in a climate culturally where people hear animals being shot as a very unkind awful thing to do can we just go through how it is actually perhaps the most ethical thing we could be doing with these populations
2: so it's definitely any any as you say anytime you start talking about harvesting ultimately you're talking about shooting um and shooting animals as i say it it, there's a whole lot of connotations around it but when you have a commercial harvester they can only shoot the animals in the head so and it's so it's a brain shot, so there's it which obviously reduces the impact on the central nervous system, and it makes the meat more tender. But to shoot an animal in the head, the animal can't know that you're there. So in terms of because once it knows, they they disappear, especially at night. So generally, you only get one shot off, and then you've got to continue on and try and get more animals. So whether that's kangaroo harvesting or or, or deer harvesting, it all has to be done um, to an ethical standard which is a headshot and there's no other viable way to do it which means that the animals actually aren't under anywhere near the stress they're in their natural environment they're they're doing their thing they're eating and then and then they're not (laughs) you know but that it's that that in between there's that there isn't the stress of of transport and abattoirs and and running up and down pens um being handled so the quality of the meat's actually i mean it's I think it's vastly superior. You don't have any of the adrenaline coming through. You don't have any of those stress hormones that that impact the flavor and the tenderness. But also for the animal's well-being, you're not putting it through that stress. And you, you know, to, to be able to harvest, you really the you've got to be stealthy, you've got to be creeping up and you've got to be having a minimum impact on, on yeah. the animals. And then
0: are. and then the ethics perspective um, environmentally. Uh, so, you know, trying to build a better world, what we've well, got there is obviously conservation of local habitat. So koalas birds, you name it.
2: The, I guess the question is, do we have to kill animals at all?
0: Mm. Uh,
2: um, because we've created this problem, isn't there a better way, a better way to clean it up? And I, I, from from our point of view, from, from Tara and I, from Discovered's point of view, the current system that we've got is the best. And it's the most ethical. Um, it's it's the most humane, and it's a control method, as well as you know. It's it is. A, it's we're trying to make it into a, a viable business and create you know a, a whole new viable series of proteins into the Australian food market. But it started off. It it is a way to control populations of animals that are having an adverse effect on the environment that they're living. So whether that is an introduced species, which is a much easier conversation to have around pigs do terrible damage to, to you know, natural environments. You get them into national parks and they dig up roots and they cause irreparable damage to the national parks, but obviously into private farmlands as well. Deer are having the same problem. They're ringbarking trees. They're really impacting native uh, grasslands up in the Alpine areas in particular, and they wallow. Uh, when you start talking about other control mechanisms for uh, you know wallabies in tasmania they're a native species uh the idea is we shouldn't be having to control them or harvest them at all but the, fa- the fact of the matter is there is an agricultural system that will control the impact of animals regardless whether it's cropping you know or even livestock and, and pasture there will be a control mechanism and there has to be um, in order for us to produce enough food to feed the planet so the control me- there are Many and numerous different control mechanisms around, you know, exclusion fencing, which which sounds as an idea to be fine, but which can cause you know mass kill-offs in areas where water ceases and you know they can't migrate naturally to um, to baiting, which we don't do a great deal of, but we do it with some of the uh, predatory animals, so foxes and dingoes in Australia. But for we, you know, in terms of a control system, to have trained professionals sneaking around at night and humanely, you know, brain-shotting animals um, that are more or less... Unaware. In their natural habitat. Yeah, yeah and, you know, without those pressures, it, it's, you know... It, it, you could argue it, that it's actually be...
0: more ethical than the most ethical of agricultural um, well, it, it, so yeah. it is.
2: And, you know, the question is, we is it better to not do it? I'm not sure. It's, I mean, that's. but it's impossible. It's not a real question because it, we have to, it just has to happen there has to be a control and there is controls and every night of the week every single night within australia there are literally thousands of animals being shot and left uh, on the ground as a control method and Mm. the people spending their time you know and and employing people to go around trying to to keep the pressures of these animals off their crops or their pasture um Mm. you know so yeah in terms of the ethics of it i'm i'm a very firm believer in it um and i think it I think it's the best we've got and we're happy to try and keep refining it. But I don't. the conversation can't be, well, we shouldn't do it at all because it's, again, that. It,
0: it, exactly. It, it, Tara, it, you it, want to say something I can say, <laughs> go for it. <laughs> well, it's
1: funny, it, Alex, like going back yeah. to what you were saying earlier about the food system and our beliefs and especially marketing, you know, you look at how much, how successful the campaigns for plant-based, highly processed meat have been. And even how successful um, high-end marketing for traditional farmed proteins like beef is. Mm. You know, we have this really romantic um, image in our minds that's extremely common of beautiful rolling green hills and pasture and organically raised, you know, heritage-breed cows or pigs. Yeah. And it's become such a, uh, an established narrative that your average person who eats meat, when they see that on a vac-packed steak or, you know, when they see an, an ad for um, a high-end meat brand, they think, oh, great, this animal's had a great life. And I think that what we should actually be asking is how was its death because mm, yeah that's um, a huge you, consideration you, yeah. you can't just have an animal that has a great life you, you genuinely have to question that if we're going to consume it what kind of death are we going to give it that is going to honor the life that it had mm. and the unfortunate reality is that you know meat processing and abattoirs in, a, in not just Australia and America as well but definitely in Australia have become a, a heavily consolidated industry,
0: and it's yeah, important. I was going to say, like a lot of farmers don't even have the option Correct. to have an abattoir on their property anymore. Or to, I mean, we're starting to finally see mobile abattoirs coming back through a lot of communal exactly. uh, regional lobbying, but um, that's taken a long time to get there. Right? Exactly. Mm. Exactly.
1: So you think about, you know, I'm not like, if, like, especially if you live in in a a regional or semi regional area, you probably have, you know. Seamus or Julie the farmer who lives down the road and has this amazing um, pastured grass-fed beef operation and you're like great I can get my meat from them but as you say because of the dynamics of abattoirs in Australia today it's likely that those farmers who do everything they can to give their animals a great life and may even be considering the sustainability impact as well by doing regenerative farming and sequestering carbon and all that they're still put in a position where they're forced to live transport their animals they've put all this effort in and um, essentially make sure that the last week or three days of their life is not that great.
0: Mm. And
1: stress is not just an emotional concept. It's not just anthropomorphizing, you know, livestock. It's a genuine biological experience. And if those animals have a stressful last one week, four days, 24 hours, it does carry through into the meat quality and the health benefits of that meat.
0: Yeah, I know. And in Victoria, it's possibly the strictest in the country in terms of that centralisation, um, slightly less so in other states. But, um, wow, okay, so there's a lot to think about, obviously, and it's certainly... Um... Oh, come on sec. So there is a lot to think about then. And um, you mentioned just briefly there, Tara, uh, you know, sequestering carbon, which, of course, is one of the fantastic things about the regenerative methods that are happening in more traditional um, meat agriculture uh, and by traditional, I say very modern history traditional. It's probably needing to be corrected there. Um, But how do we then establish a carbon footprint of wild game? So it's a
1: great question. It's one of the first things that we put effort into when we created mm. this is we realised there's really sort of two challenges with our business um, to scaling. Uh, one of them is shining a light on the sustainability benefits and without hard data or a study, we couldn't really do that. So the other and the other is just Sort of marketing and making people realize that wild game is not something weird or niche or avant garde, but actually should be considered normal and is really delicious. Mm. But uh, on the sustainability side, we actually partnered with um, one of Australia's longest running um, carbon abatement schemes, the Carbon Reduction Institute, and we got them to conduct a life cycle analysis of our venison harvesting life cycle. And it's funny because the result that we got was phenomenal, but I actually think we can do better.
0: <laughs> okay. <laughs> what was the result?
1: Well, to unpack it a little bit, I mean, for your listeners who you know may not be fully aware, a lifecycle analysis involves looking at sort of the total supply chain of any product,
0: mm-hmm. from the
1: raw materials that create it to the energy and water that may be consumed manufacturing it any waste generated, manufacturing it, and then including freight to the end customer, packaging, et cetera. So it's really every element that goes into making a finished product in the hand of the end customer. Absolutely. And for us, that basically consists of um, freight and transport, both of harvesters bringing us um, harvest from the field and us then shipping the product onwards, and then our own facilities, energy, water consumption, waste generation. And that sounds like a lot of inputs, but it is nothing compared to traditional farm proteins where the amount of feed, uh, water consumption, especially land occupation, transport miles, time um, are, are vastly more significant than our operation. So we got them to footprint us and then they did a sampling of about 25 existing studies of the same analysis for Australian beef. Um, and what they ended up finding is that the, the footprint for wild Australian venison is about one kilo of CO2 per one kilo of meat. For Australian beef, it's about 25 kilos of CO2 per kilo of beef. So we're essentially, you know, less than 5% of the impact of eating beef. Mm. And, that was and just-
0: this is traditionally farmed beef. So there'd probably boring. been be a couple of months of grain feeding in the mix, yeah. and yeah, a lot yeah. of transportation. Yeah. yeah, yeah,
1: absolutely. Doesn't doesn't speak for as you referenced, you know, more sustainable regenerative mm. beef farming, and you know, we're definitely not anti-beef. Yeah, <laughs>
0: totally. And I think it's really important to also talk about the um the intensive impact of hyper processed, ultra processed, packaged foods. You know, uh, you know I, I think we're always going on about meat and yet a hyper-processed food has its raw material origins in monoculture, extremely extractive, very high inputs, huge amount of transportation, often carbon-based to a factory. Do they have a bunch of stuff added to it? Petroleum packaging, cardboard packaging from trees, whether it's recycled or not. Then it gets shipped halfway across the world. Then it sits on a shelf. <laughs> Being lit by fluorescent light bulbs, then it goes in someone's boot, then it goes to the car, and we're not talking about it. And it's just yeah. crazy.
1: Well, that's it's- why we did the study. I mean, what yeah. you is very much music to my ears. Like, I've got nothing against people who are legitimately vegan or vegetarian, but I absolutely hate plant based meat alternatives. Yeah. And for all the reasons you just mentioned, it's kind of one of the biggest lies that's been. Um, effectively sold to the end consumer in supermarkets Mm -hmm. like if you want to be vegetarian or vegan great eat some vegetables
0: (laughs) I love a good chickpea curry I always say you don't need a full you know roast pumpkin with some tahini on it there's so many wonderful things you can do but hyper processed is not the answer traditional meat is not the answer and thanks to you guys bringing in a more varied conversation around meats hyper wild game, I think really starts to complete a picture of where we should really be headed when we think about what ends up on our family tables.
1: Absolutely. And the numbers speak for themselves. Like we did our LCA so that we could stand it up against the same kind of marketing that's been done by, you know, Beyond Meat and Impossible and, and those kind of organisations and by their own metrics they actually have a footprint of about three and a half kilos per kilo of product so it's yeah. still three times less carbon intensive than a plant-based meat alternative
0: absolutely and i think that is a brilliant um sell for you guys given you're going on to a lot of uh, cattle farms and helping them with wild overpopulation it's like well how can we actually work together um, instead of creating enemies, I think, in our whole food food system is one of the best things we can all work towards because there's actually a place for all whole foods, right? Billy, what's absolutely. your take on the um, – were you excited when you saw the carbon study for you guys?
2: We, we were we were delighted. To Bit of honest. a happy dance, we were, yeah? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> the, we, we obviously – we then look to be carbon neutral, so we've offset – um, but our offset costs, is, as Tara said, five percent of traditional beef. So there are beef. There's beef on the market now, which is is carbon neutral. Mm. Um, so I can't imagine what their cost would be. But we, you know, with or without offsetting, currently, I, I don't know where you can produce meat. I mean, as Tara said, obviously we, the you know, with regenerative farming techniques, you can have negative carbon potentially with beef, depending how you get yeah, it. Yeah, you can. It's that pretty is, incredible. That is really niche. That is incredible, and that's brilliant, and that's you know we're. We're all for any, you know, any of these systems or techniques that, that can have these positive impacts. But for us, I mean, this to be able to have, to be able to have a meat that you know um, is having such well, it's having a little impact in terms of carbon release. But if you can get an understanding that's having such a positive impact on its, its its local environment, you know, and that ecosystem that you're actually you're pulling it out of, it's having a positive net impact on that that ecosystem and at the same time having a really minimal impact in terms of carbon footprint. It's, you know, if you're not happy um, understanding what the, the, how good the actual flavour and nutrition is, you just got to understand that the actual environmental impacts are, are a positive. They're just hugely positive. So we, we sort of had an understanding of a feel for it, but when we actually got the data in and we looked at it, we, were, we felt vindicated and it was, yeah, it was great.
0: Nice. And, Billy, can I ask you how farmers that you've been working with to provide this service in managing these wild populations, have you got any positive testimonials from them in terms of what they've Absolutely. seen in terms of change in the landscape, um, ease of pressure yep. on
2: the landscape. And so certain areas have been unviable, um, historically for farmers, especially up. So where we, some of our, our main harvest areas in Northeast Victoria. So you've got that sort of the great divide and you've got all those fringe countries and the valleys. So generally they we're coming from the bush and coming into the pastures during the evening to graze so they are they're they're technically browsing animals they they'll eat bark and they'll eat shrubs um but they still like to supplement with, with pasture as as it you know so they especially clovers and the the, the sweeter improved pastures so they will go to great lengths to push through fences and and no matter what you know eventually they'll get through a barbed wire or an electric fence and or you know even a, a two meter fence which they're putting these along state parks and uh and treat areas are putting some fairly significant fencing in, but Samba in particular will get through. So for the, for the farmers to have not to have to go and manage it themselves after a big day to then go out late at night and try and maintain populations um, to have professionals literally sneak in. They don't hear them. Um, generally they're using suppressed rifles. Uh, so it's relatively quiet. They, the harvest is more or less on foot the whole time. And they'll walk around and then just collect the animals. Um, you know, they, they, they're also receiving a they receive a rebate for every kilo that's taken from their property. So the property is assigned a pick a pick code, which is a national code for identifying each farm, and the animal has to be designated to that particular pick from where it was shot with the time and a date. So then, when we do the pays um, to the harvesters, there's a there's an amount that actually goes back to the farmer. So it's not they're not just getting um, you know management of these of these animals; they're getting a direct financial kick from it as well. So they're seeing you know some some areas dramatic improvements in their pasture management um, and dramatic you know uh, reduction in issues with their fencing um, and they're not having to go out late at night it's been a, they really are yeah it's a, it's a brilliant network it's a brilliant system.
0: Incredible. Yep. and something we spoke about offline actually before we started recording was around arable land and why we can't just grow veggies everywhere uh, yeah. certainly not in the country that we are in Australia. Can you talk the average city person through why that's not possible?
2: So we talk about plant-based diets generally as a cereal or a legume or a, you know, vegetable,
1: mm-hmm.
2: which requires generally flat or mildly undulating country that has good access to water generally. I mean, you can get um, crops on more arid areas for, for a single season. But there's still, you know, Australia's got vast, vast tracts of, of land that, just completely will never grow crops. Most of the Northern country of Australia um, is, it's enormous. So uh, arable land that's, that's appropriate for cropping is actually, I mean, if you look at the size of Australia and you think, why can't we just crop and produce, we could produce you know, enough food for the world. There's only so much of it that's really appropriate to, to crop. Um, and especially some of the, the intensive crops like vegetables, which are really inappropriate in these Southern states. Oh, so, you
0: just said intensive crops like vegetables, right. um, that might be quite a new phrase for a lot of people who think in, veggies are really light impact crops. Um, yeah. Can you talk us through that?
2: Well, they require a lot of nutrients and a lot of water. Um, and nutrients generally in the t- in the form of fertilizer, but you need to have a really good base, it's like a really good soil base. So if you look at, I mean, if we, we look around. Victoria, there are certain parts of the state that are appropriate. So around Werribee, they grow a lot of vegetables. I think they're growing a lot of broccoli. And there are really only isolated patches that are appropriate for certain types of, of crops. Um, and then, you, you know, we've got obviously fruit around the Murray-Darling Basin. You've got massive orchards. but And then cereal crops sort of through the Wimmera and where they're getting that you know they'll get like a winter crop in but there's nothing happening during the summer so you're looking at these areas and once you look at them in isolation farming is a farming covers all of australia ultimately but the amount of cropping is a very small part of that and that's pretty well maximized like the highest return on any farming is cropping so people crop as much as they possibly can but there's not a lot more cropping country that's viable within australia so we're kind of we can improve those methods and they are, and they're constantly getting more efficient water usage is getting better. And the ability to, you know, get more efficient in your harvesting is, is improving. Um, and you talk about aquaponics and you talk about greenhouses and all these, which is, which is brilliant. And it's all part of the future, but ultimately there is the vast majority of Australian land is not appropriate for cropping and, and can really only run in these ruminant animals. And we're looking at animals like deer in particular do, do extremely well in rugged, rough, bush and scrubland because Where you literally them. couldn't
0: grow another thing
2: you couldn't grow a thing not only that you couldn't run sheep or cattle you might mm. run goats but you'll see these animals coming out of the bush that we're harvesting so they're obviously as I said they supplement their, their feed with pasture when they can but a lot of them you know they'll only be doing that every now and then when they can they're, they're doing really well off shrub and bark and blackberries and you know and, and some of those alpine grasses and they get fat whereas you know if you tried to run cattle I mean, you talk about the high country cattle were, were great, but they didn't get fat up there. They went up there and they, they'd manage the summer. Um, yeah. We're pulling, you know, these animals that just do brilliantly. Even, you know, we look at, again, it's probably a little bit more a tricky conversation, but kangaroos, for instance, do reasonably well in scrubby and arid areas. They can travel far for water. They can eat very, you know, diet. They don't just need to have a really high nutrient um, rich diet, Um and they can we can create viable um populations on areas that wouldn't sustain that wouldn't sustain our you know commonly farmed animals beef beef and, and sheep um, let alone crops mm. so for Australia to continue to produce enough protein i mean if we look at purely at a protein level we we absolutely have to use some of these more arid areas to run to run animals there's just there's no other way to create a protein from them yeah so
0: it's actually in the feed the world conversation growing population all of those concerns people have where we're being told there's only going to be one way to do this and we have to productize food and, and that's right. start growing protein in labs you're saying wild animals roaming on super rocky country that are out of control uh, is going to be our best whole food option which is of course the option we always want to try and go for
2: Absolutely. And that look, that conversation obviously extends to cattle and and sheep and and, and goats, you know, all through northern Australia. These are giant million acre uh, stations that run thousands of cattle. But we're talking one one head per 40, 50, 100 acres, you know, down south we're looking at one, you know, an animal to the acre, roughly speaking, or something along those lines. So the conversation, if we were to stop producing meat today, we wouldn't have enough arable farming land for cropping to to feed to feed australia let alone you know start having any let any, alone have an export any, market yeah. any sort of export so and suddenly you've got really isolated patches that are that are, that are viable and this is it it's a conversation around water and inputs you know cropping mm. requires inputs you it's literally how much fertilizer you put in the ground gives you a yield gives you and is it worth to put you know it's putting money in the ground to receive money back out of it whereas you don't necessarily. There is no fertilising happening up in these northern properties, and we certainly aren't doing any sort of inputs into these marginal country that we're that we're harvesting out of. Mm. So the, again, it's not it's not one's better than the other. It's just that they, we aren't going to produce anything else from these these parts of the of the country that we're already.
0: Yeah, harvesting. Um, I mean, it's a no-brainer, really. Zero input farming on land you couldn't do anything else with.
2: That's right. It's <laughs> just that,
0: like, that, okay, that positive... tell me how that doesn't work. There's actually no a way to say mm. Yeah,
2: it has a positive impact on that environment, that local environment. Mm. You're pulling these animals out and it allows our other, you know, native species, which are not mm. not just the kangaroos and the wombats. We're talking about the marsupials and the birds and yeah, you know, impacting trees, they're impacting grasses, they're impacting the density of the soils, waterways, the whole thing. It's, it's mm. a, the system, you know, and we've created this mess. So I think it's, we've all got, some responsibility to try and to get our way out of it and I think that's part of what we're trying to offer here is
0: Mm -hmm. and and when we say management does that mean your goal is to not cull beyond the reproductive rates so that there's like it's a self-replenishing system that's manageable well yeah
2: in in order to have a commercially viable Network. yeah of course there's that aspect yeah. we, certainly yeah. when we were starting out we were looking into that and trying to make sure that we weren't over but we found that we can't we can't harvest enough to have an impact okay so, wow so if you look at the kangaroo management system so we do discovered predominantly we're looking at um you know we we don't directly deal with kangaroo um, we've we've got wallaby and stuff out of flinders island but the kangaroo network is the most advanced and it's the most um, sophisticated it's been operating for probably 60 years now mm-hmm. um, their management system is based around doing surveys of an area whether it's aerially or on ground or on, on foot to work out the a relative population for an area and then yeah. allowing a 10% commercial harvest of that of any given population for any given area
0: mm-hmm. and also a
2: whole you know vast way especially New South Wales so then if you look at what your replenishing rates are is roughly 30% for yeah. kangaroos if you're only able to take 10% of any given population, a 30% replenishing rate means you can never have a drastic effect on that population.
0: Mm-hmm. And also
2: the most significant factors are environmental. So in a drought, a given population can be reduced by as much as 50% or mm. can increase by 100% in two, two to three years.
0: And getting into so- these wild foods as a people, which I'm just going to ask you about for some inspiration for people, Tara, in a sec, helps you businesses like yours to grow which means helps even more effective management of those populations
2: absolutely
0: and uh also future proofs us against potentially traditional foods not being available during times of drought and means we actually still have meat on the table for those who eat it wow okay
2: it's it's definitely a huge a huge driver is is Trying to make it um, commercializing these wild proteins, hmm. so as as and that is the main con, you know that's the main control method is once they have a value, once that we as a as a society as, you know, have have put that monetary value on them, then everything is achievable. We can actually afford to go out and get and get the animals. At the moment, you know we, it's why we're trying to keep steer away from this being too much for high end niche product. We're, yeah, we're trying exactly. to make it a Viable alternative protein that yeah. has a market value. And we want that's why we're trying to keep keep our prices at, at you know at, at a matching price point so that people aren't put off by that and they can they can actually see it as an alternative protein and not some exotic high end expensive exactly
0: treat. and um, that's how we create scale and so Tara yeah. you being the foodie um, and me too uh, how do we get more people incorporating these sorts of foods like what are your favorite things to do with some of the products you guys range in your everyday kitchen uh,
1: i think probably like the low-hanging fruit in demystifying cooking with venison for people is the two easiest substitutes are probably mince like venison mince um, can be treated almost identically to a lean beef mince or lamb mince so any application that you would do with those you know, traditional forms of mints you can do with venison and you'll get an automatically leaner, higher iron, higher protein outcome. Um, you can always roll in a bit of extra fat if that's sort of your thing. Um, but it's a it's it's literally a like-for-like substitute. And the other one that is pretty much a like-for-like substitute is braises, so shanks or um, like a slow cook pull cool apart shoulder, the same way you would with lamb, can be substituted for venison, and and those recipe formulations are things people are f- familiar with, going back to our grandparents. You know, like grandma knows how to do a lamb ro- lamb shoulder roast. She can do one with venison too. Um, the only thing that really changes is cooking time. So I think to achieve like a really succulent braise um, with venison in the same way that you would with a fattier cut of lamb because there isn't that fat, you kind of have to go longer.
0: Yeah, I was going to say because they're so athletic, right? So you need to break it down a bit longer. Exactly.
1: To really break down the cell walls um, and get that pull-apart result, you just need to go longer. Mm. But uh, recipe, flavours are pretty much... direct substitute of exactly the same um the harder one to get people to do really well at home is probably your your prime cuts and primals um billy is billy is definitely better at it than me (laughs) it has got got an intuitive ring after cooking like backstraps or chops or like your fast sort of prime steak cuts of venison um, you have to be a, a little bit more careful, I would say, than cooking like a dry-aged ribeye steak, which is mm. a lot more forgiving. Um, but in general, what we've found, and this is why we release so much recipe content via our website and social media, is that there aren't many settings where you would normally use another red meat, like yeah. people, where you can't use medicine. Yeah. Absolutely. There's always a way to make it work and if the slight tweaks are cook it a little bit faster or cook it a lot slower or cook it a bit longer, um, those are really small changes to make in our behaviour um, when the rest of the recipe stays the same, you know, yeah. herbs, spices, concepts. Yeah, so It's been really fun to learn that because every time we sort of say we're going to do some new recipe development with chefs and with our photographer i just go, could, could we do enchiladas? Would that work? You know, could we, do, <laughs> could we do like Thai food? Like, would that work? And we always find that it does. Mm. So um, I think the the reality is, it's just not something most people have tried yet. So. Mm,
0: absolutely. <laughs> you could go hardcore. Like my family does. We're from France on my mom's side, French mm-hmm. Mauritian. And um, my auntie married a, a wonderful guy who um, hunts venison. Um, in the season and uh, like I have visions of like being a little kid and and having like venison carpaccio you know put out on the table or tartares and things like that and that's just kind of what we grew up with on special occasions um, when the men had been out hunting um, which was quite like it might seem quite old school to people listening now who haven't had that connection but like as we start having these conversations and speaking to people like you, Billy, who've grown up on the land and who see a very different story to this hyper-marketed, tailored narrative that's being brought out about how we move forward with the future of food. Um, I think it gets us to all challenge our own understanding, deepen our own understandings and um, and start to build some more possibilities into our day-to-day Um, day-to-day eating and vary it more and incorporate what we have on our doorstep that actually needs to be eaten, otherwise it will be wasted or take over landscapes and destroy natural habitat. So um, I want to thank you both for this conversation. I think it's been really enlightening and hopefully those of you listening have definitely got the message that this is not an anti- Plant-based people, anti-vegan or vegetarian friends out there, this is about everybody thinking about the best whole foods for people and planet moving forward, and uh, and how this definitely has a place on the table for those who do choose to eat meat. So thank you both for joining me, and I'm really really looking forward to seeing how the low tox community goes in um in getting this in their meal plans.
1: Totally. Thanks for the opportunity.
2: Yeah, thanks. That's brilliant. A lot of fun. Super welcome.
0: Well, there you have it. Thank you so much for tuning in today. I hope you enjoyed today's interview. And I want to remind you that you can come join me on social, on Instagram, at Life or one word, or my personal Instagram, uh, at underscore Alex with two X's, Stuart, S-T-U-A-R-T. On Facebook, you can find us at Life. Uh, and of course, lowtoxlife.com. And if you want additional support and community around leading a low tox life, I can't recommend a better thing to do than to come join us at the Low Tox Club for just $49 Australian per year, which is about 29.30 US, about 27 euro, and about 25 pounds. You get a stack of club member perks and the benefit of a beautiful private Facebook community. So check out the website, lotoxlife.com, hit the Explore tab and you'll see Join the Lotox Club as your very first option there. I hope to see you in there. If not, I will see you in our wider community sometime soon. Thanks again for tuning in.